Uh, can you please turn with me to Genesis chapter 22? Genesis chapter 22, which is on page 19. And there's an outline that you received as you came in. Um, that's on the inside of one of those handouts. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you will feed us with the bread of your true voice. That you will give us grace to hear your word, to believe you and rejoice. May we see the suffering of the Lord Jesus in the cross and know the Father's love. May your spirit work in our hearts and cause us to believe and respond in the way that, that you want us to. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 22 is set 4,000 years ago. God had called a man named Abraham, and made him many promises. Promised him many descendants. Promised that they would possess the land. Promised that through him all the nations of the world would be blessed. But years and years and years had passed, and still no heir, no promised son. He and his wife Sarah had become very old by then, and as a couple, they were physically incapable of having children. But then in Genesis 21, God gave them Isaac. He fulfilled his promise, even though it didn't look like he was going to. And in the same chapter, God had also commanded Abraham to send Hagar and Ishmael away. Hagar was his wife's slave girl, and Ishmael was Abraham's son through her. Ishmael was conceived because... Abraham and Sarah had failed to trust God to fulfill his promise. They wanted to help him along. God promised to look after Ishmael, to make him into a great nation. And Abraham had to trust God for that as he sent Ishmael out with Hagar, his mother. And even when it didn't look like he was going to, God fulfilled his promise. That was the lesson that we learnt last week. And that was the lesson that Abraham learnt. He learnt that God could indeed be trusted. And now in Genesis 22, we will see if he really does trust God. Because verse 1 of Genesis 22 opens with these words. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham... And he said, here I am. See, God's speaking to Abraham again. Most of the time, God has spoken to Abraham in the past was to make him promises. But the last time he had spoken to Abraham, he was telling him to send Ishmael away. Abraham had been faithful when it came to Ishmael. 
He sent him and Hagar away at God's command. But was that just a matter of convenience, though? It was convenient, wasn't it, that God sent Ishmael away? It would have been very difficult. He was not liking the idea, but it would have solved a lot of problems. And, of course, Sarah, his wife, they was there pressuring him to do that. But what if it were Isaac? That would have been harder. Would he, would he have obeyed God if God had asked him to, to give up Isaac? He, he loved Ishmael. He trusted God for Ishmael's life. But he, but he really loved Isaac. Would he trust God even for Isaac? We're going to find out because the very next verse God says to him Take your son. Take your son. Now the Hebrew scholars tell us that it's a very polite way of saying it. It's like, please take your son. And God doesn't usually speak that way. He usually just tells people what to do. But here it's like a please there. It's going to be something tough. Take your son, God says, your only son. See, Ishmael's already been sent away. Your only son, Isaac. Isaac is the one God had promised. Isaac was the heir. Isaac was the one that was going to make him many descendants. Isaac, whom you love. It's going to be a tough one because we know what's coming. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. What an awful commandment to hear. I can't imagine how stressed Abraham would have been. Can you imagine what would have been going on in his mind? Sacrifice Isaac? How could God possibly ask him to do that? And what of God's word? What of God's promises? God's promises and his command, they seem contradictory. On the one hand, God promised great things through Isaac, and now he wants him to be sacrificed. What would Abraham do? What would you do if this were you? Oh, you know what Abraham did? Verse 3. Abraham rose early in the morning, Selled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Now, in this passage, we're not told what goes on in Abraham's mind, but from his actions we can tell he was in quite a state. Because notice how he, he saddled the donkey first and then started cutting the wood. Well, much more logical to do it the other way around, wouldn't it? But he's, he's, he's not concentrating on the task at hand. He's not thinking. Like, he's just—he's making mistakes. He's—he's he's stressed. He's willing to do what God wants him to do, but it's not easy. And so he sets out on this long and terrible journey to the land of Moriah. Now it was a long journey. Abraham only arrived at the mountain of Moriah on the third day. And so the worry, the torture, the pain would have been prolonged. 
The execution would be playing on Abraham's mind over the three days they travelled. We don't know how many times, probably over and over again. By the end of this ordeal, Isaac would have, in a sense, been dead to him for three days. In verse 4, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there to worship and will come again to you. He still believes he will sacrifice Isaac and yet he, he says he will come back with him. We don't know what he'd figure out at this stage. But it does make sense, doesn't it? Because God had promised that Isaac would be Abraham's heir. It was through him God planned to make Abraham a great nation and bring blessing. The book of Hebrews tells us that Abraham had knew God had promised Isaac would be the heir. And so he figured that God would raise Isaac from the dead. God must do that if he was to fulfill his promises. Abraham already knew that he would. Then he'd be really needing to be trusting God to take that kind of risk, wouldn't he? Abraham went ahead because he was a man of faith. And so he tells his servants to wait. The servants had come with him all this way, but they couldn't go the whole way. What he and Isaac were going to do, they would do alone. And so for the last leg of the journey, verse 6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And so we have this picture of Abraham and then there is Isaac with the wood on his back walking up Mount Moriah to be sacrificed. Keep that stuff on your mind. Because interestingly enough, interestingly enough, the Jewish commentary, ancient Jewish commentary, noted that Isaac was was like a condemned man carrying his own cross. Verse 6 continues. And Abraham took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they both went together. Father and son, walking toward the sacrifice. And then, in verse 7, the boy calls to his father. My father. Here am I, my son. And here's the question. Behold the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? How would you answer that one? Surprise, it's you! Can't say that, can you? Well, Abraham says in verse 8, God will provide for himself the land and the burnt offering, my son. God will provide for himself the land. There is anguish in Abraham, but there is also trust. He doesn't know what God is going to do, but he trusts God. And Isaac trusts Abraham. And so the end of verse 8, Isaac doesn't argue. 
The end of verse 8, so they went, both of them together, just like the end of verse 6. And they finally come to the designated place. Now, it's a significant place. It's not just a, a random, isolated place. It's, it is, verse 9, they come to the place of which God had told him. Something important about this place. And the narrative then goes into slow motion. Abraham built the altar there. Like he had done many times before. And then he laid the wood on the altar for the sacrifice. But still no lamb. And then at the end of verse 9, he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now, in ancient times, the animals that were sacrificed were usually killed before being cut up and placed on the altar. Maybe Abraham's trying to delay the actual slaughter of his son at the last moment he can. But the fact that the old man bound his son, didn't just catch him by surprise and slit his throat or stab him, you know, suggests that Isaac consented. That he was willing to go through with this. He trusted his father and Abraham trusted his God. And then finally in verse 10, Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. He was really, really ready to go through with it. And we wait for the horrible moment that is about to occur and just when he's going to do the unthinkable, verse 11, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham! And he said, here am I. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham had passed the test. He, he proved to be genuine. Can you, can you imagine his relief? Abraham really did fear God. He really did honor him and trust him. He showed it by, by being prepared to sacrifice his son. His faith was proved by his action. Now what about the offerings? Well, verse 13. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. There was a substitute for Isaac. God had provided the sacrifice himself. Just as Abraham had predicted. Though it was a ram, not a lamb. The lamb God would provide later. And in verse 14, Abraham called the name of the place, The Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. But God doesn't leave it there. The faith and obedience of Abraham lead to, lead to God's promises being affirmed. Verse 15, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, 
By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens and as the sand that is on the seashore. God, God is reaffirming the promises that he made earlier. But there's more emphasis on, on Abraham's offspring. In Genesis 12, God had promised that through Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. And it's understood that it was by his descendants. But here God makes it specific. And in fact, even more specific than we realize at first. You see, the word translated offspring there can be a collective word. That is, it can represent many people. Or it could be singular. You can only tell from context. It's like the word sheep. Right? If I say, you have many sheep, then you know it's plural. But if you say, your sheep lives in its sheep pen, then you know it is singular. Well, in the first half of verse 17, it's clearly plural. He says, I will bless you, I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. But then, the second half, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Not really their enemies, but his enemies. God is, God is narrowing down to a descendant of Abraham. Is it Isaac? Or is it someone else? And, verse 18, In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because you have obeyed my voice. If we went on to Galatians 3.16, Paul identifies this offspring as Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who ultimately triumphed over his enemies. And in him all the nations of the world are being blessed. The story ends in verse 19 with Abraham going back. To his servants as promised. So Abraham returned to his, to his young men. And they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Before we talk about the significance of this. Let me tell you that this version of the story that we read is not the only one. Now, there's another version of the story that ends somewhat differently. I don't know where it comes from. But I heard it from my daughter. Who heard of the click. The ACA Sunday School. Don't worry, it wasn't the Sunday School teacher I told her. It's one of the other kids. It goes like this. It's a joke, alright? Don't worry. Abraham is there, bound on the altar. No, Isaac's bound on the altar. Abraham lifts his knife. Angel of the Lord calls, Abraham, Abraham! And he says, hang on a tick. Yeah, what? Okay. Now we read earlier that the place where Abraham bound Isaac was on the mountains of Moriah. Mount Moriah was one of the hills on which the temple and Jerusalem were built. Our 2 Chronicles chapter 3 verse 1 tells us that Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Have a look at the next slide. There's a model there of, uh, of Jerusalem. Okay. Let me see. If we can do this. 
that's the city of Jerusalem. That over here is the Mount of Olives. This here is Mount Moriah. And this here is Mount Zion. Although sometimes Mount Zion is used for the whole thing. Right? So there you've got here Mount Moriah. And on there you've got the temple. You see that? Mount Moriah, as you can see, is not just a uh, one one little uh, one little hill just up and down like that. There's a whole there's a whole ridge here, and that's significant uh, because the highest point along here is said to be that area there outside the city, and that. Now and then, now this bit is controversial, okay? Because some different people have got different views on the on the geography here. But this is said to be, by some at least, the place called Golgotha, Calvary. So you've got the temple on Mount Moriah. And every time a sacrifice is offered in the temple, it reminds them of the sacrifice of Isaac. And you've also got on the edge of Mount Moriah, or the peak of Mount Moriah, the place where it's quite possible, not certain, quite possible, that the place where Jesus died. Whether or not that's the exact place doesn't matter so much, but it does make sense, doesn't it? Because if you fast forward 2,000 years from the time of Abraham, there you see the other sacrifice. Before that sacrifice, Jesus travelled to Jerusalem. Like Abraham took Isaac there together with his servants on a long journey, Jesus journeyed with his father and with his disciples. He set his face to go there, knowing that it was there he must die. On his way there, he was identified by the Father in the same words that God the Father used of, of Isaac. When Jesus was transfigured on the mountain, God said, This is my son whom I love, my beloved. It's like he said that to, to Abraham, Take the son whom you love, take your beloved son. And though Jesus travels to Jerusalem with his disciples and that last leg he leaves, they have to leave them behind. When he's carrying his cross, he's alone. Heading to Calvary, just him and the Father, with the wood for the sacrifice on his back. You see, in Jesus, God did indeed provide a lamb, just as Abraham had said. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But unlike for Isaac, Jesus had no last minute reprieve. He went all the way. He suffered and died to be the sacrifice that removes our sins. To be our substitute and take the punishment that we deserve for what we have done wrong. And Jesus did that willingly because he trusted the Father. As Isaac trusted Abraham, Jesus trusted his father. He knew his father could be trusted. 
And he showed it by his obedience. Obedience unto death, even death on the cross. And he placed his life in the Father's hands, waiting for the resurrection. And his trust was rewarded. For on the third day, Jesus rose again, as the Father had promised. Jesus trusted the Father for vindication. And we can trust him too. Now you may be thinking, God God was faithful to Jesus, but, but how do I know he'll be faithful to me? God was trustworthy with his promises when it came to his son. How do I know that, that I can be trust? I can trust him? Well, friends, we know that we can trust God because of what he's done in that sacrifice for us. Abraham did not withhold his only son from God, and God has not withheld his only son from us. Abraham's actions show that he really did trust God. And God's actions show that he really does love us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Or Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? For you see, friends, what Abraham went through was only a shadow of what God would go through. What Abraham was asked to do, God has done. He's offered his only son for you and for me to die as our substitute, to be sacrificed in our place, to take away our sins. And in the end, that's how we know that God can be trusted. That's how he know, we know that he loves us and is working for our good. That's how we know he will keep his promises, even when everything looks wrong and things seem completely bleak. That's how we know that we are forgiven and accepted by him when the accuser and our conscience condemn us to death. That is how we know that God is good. And that in the end, no matter how long we wait to see it in any other way, It is true. And He is good to us. And that God will keep His promises to us, even when it looks impossible. And now friends, if we can trust God like that, if we can trust God like Abraham could, like Jesus could, then we can obey Him as well. Those two things go together. Hebrews 11 shows us the connection between, between Abraham's faith and obedience. It's by faith. Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it is said through Isaac, shall, be your, shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham trusted God. And because he trusted God, he obeyed him believed his promises and so he obeyed him even when it was hard. And so Abraham's faith and therefore obedience have become a model for us. Abraham's faith is proved genuine by his actions. If he was willing to lay down the most precious thing he could, the life of his own son, put it on the line, 
Because he believed that somehow or other, God was going to restore him and keep his promise. Then he really must trust God. Faith leads to action. And brothers and sisters, we know it's sometimes hard to obey God. Maybe because we don't trust Him enough. Sometimes He calls us to give up something really precious to us. And it's difficult. But it's for Him. Something that means a lot to us. To test us in a, in a positive way. To give us a chance to put our faith into action. We know He keeps His promises. So we won't lose out in the end. Abraham trusted God with the life of his son because he knew that God had a future for that son. And we can trust God with our own lives because we know that he has a future planned for us. If we believe in the resurrection, we wouldn't be so worried about our life, would we? If we believe in eternity, then we'd be willing to take risks for the gospel. We'd be willing to die for Jesus if it came to that. Would you? If we are willing to die for Jesus, then we must be willing to live for him. Our lives are no longer our own. So we have to live to please him. And our New Testament reading on James 2 was very instructive on that point, wasn't it? The book of James tells us that our faith, like Abraham's faith, is proved genuine in the very practical ways that we do what we do. What do we do when two people of different social classes come to church? And we're unwelcoming. Do we discriminate between them? What do we do when we see a poor brother or sister who needs food and clothing? Do we help them or just give them pious words? What do we do with our tongues? Do we quarrel with each other for worldly things? Do we slander each other? Are we pretentious in our planning? Do we exploit our workers? Are we patient in our sufferings? These are all things raised by James that says these are things that test our faith. Will our faith be proved genuine? We say we trust God, but really he's, he's just a hobby. Brothers and sisters, God loves us. He really does. He gave His Son for us. And we can trust Him to keep His promises to us. If we trust Him, then there will be no sacrifice too great for us to make for Him. Let's be willing to do whatever it takes. I'll leave you with a song by Michael Card that that captures the story and its significance, responding in faith and, and therefore obedience to Him. And then we'll pray together at the confession. Pray together. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Creator of everything, Judge of everyone, we admit that we have sinned against You in thought, in speech, and action, and deserve Your just punishment. Truly repent and are sorry for what we have done. Have mercy on us, merciful Father, for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, who died for us. Forgive us all that is past, 
and enable us to serve and please you in a fresh way. For the glory of your name. Amen. God has shown his love for us in giving us his Son and to die for us on the cross. And through him, we indeed have forgiveness and eternal life. We're going to come to share in the Lord's Supper now. And to remember together that, that great sacrifice uh, that Jesus made on the cross for us. We do so in faith, trusting him for our salvation. We do so in love, knowing that we are bound together by, that, by his sacrifice. And we do so in hope. We look forward to the day when, when Jesus returns. So I'm going to lead us in prayer as we prepare our hearts to uh, share together in this meal. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for that great love that you've shown us in giving your Son for us. We thank you that Jesus was indeed obedient even to death on the cross because he trusted in you. We pray that you help us to trust you as well. We thank you that you have shown yourself to be trustworthy. Thank you that your promises are always fulfilled. We thank you that you have promised that through the death of Jesus we do have forgiveness and life with you eternally. We thank you that he died in our place once and for all that full, complete and sufficient sacrifice for our sins. We thank you that he has united us together in love and that he will come back again in glory. Our Father, we pray that as we eat this bread and drink this wine we'll indeed be remembering what he has done for us and truly trusting in that sacrifice that you provided on the cross. For the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. And when he had given you thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way after supper he took the cup. And when he had given you thanks he gave it to them saying, Drink this all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Amen.